Hello, I'm Bert Broadhead, and welcome to Building Our Future, the podcast where we meet the people shaping the way we design, construct, and utilize our built environment. When talking about placemaking, both in the wider sense of urban design, but also within site-specific developments, it's impossible to ignore the potential impact of an integrated policy for arts and culture. Recognizing the potential is one thing, whereas understanding the process of actually implementing the strategy is less evolved. Today, I meet with someone whose mission it is to promote music in this context. I wanted to understand both why music is important in terms of urban design, and also how we go about creating a coherent music ecosystem in towns, cities, and places. My guest today is Dr. Shane Shapiro, founder and CEO of Sound Diplomacy. In his own words, Sound Diplomacy bridges the gap between music and the world of policy and urban planning. Sound Diplomacy is the leader of the Music Cities movement, which sees culture built into the urban environment through policy. Sound Diplomacy helped governments develop healthy music ecosystems to create vibrant, exciting communities, and it helps developers harness the power of music to create a sense of place, heritage and culture within mixed-use schemes. Clients include the Mayor of London, governments in Cuba on behalf of the United Nations, Brisbane, Armenia, Costa Rica and St Lucia. Sound Diplomacy has contributed to Katowice's successful UNESCO City of Music bid and has helped over 500 artists and companies break into new markets. Shane, thank you very much for uh, inviting me over to talk to you. Thanks for having me. We haven't worked in Costa Rica in a while, but we can add a few other countries on. We do a lot of work in <laughs> other U- US, Canada, Australia, all over Europe as well. So Shane, I'd, I'd like to just start by discussing why it is you're doing. So we're, we're mm-hmm. lucky that we're living in a time when there's widespread and growing realization that arts and culture both play a key role in society and that in order for them to flourish, we need to be thinking about them as part of the fabric of our urban design. I think that we all recognize the value of arts and culture, but we don't recognize the process of creating value in arts and culture. And what drives us purely is the recognition that for us to create great art, and for our case, it's music because that's what we do and that's what, it's where I come from, that's what we know. People kind of ignore the, you know, often years of failure that lead into creating success. To create a great song, it has to go through a whole process of not so great uh, stuff to become. And what we've recognized is that we will use arts and culture to promote something in its finished product, but we won't recognize the value that the process brings. So what we end up doing is we end up valuing land more than what happens inside the building because the places and spaces you need to create great music or great art or great culture are not the most financially valuable usage of that particular building. But what comes out of it is what's lucrative. What comes out of it is what's financially viable. So what we try to do is we try to explain that there's an ecosystem here. That ecosystem has quite a long value chain. Music has I would argue one of the longest value chains of all the cultural and creative industries. It impacts everything because it's ubiquitous, because it's all around us, because music's everywhere. Even when you don't think music is in a place, it's in a place. And in the UK, thankfully, anytime music gets played anywhere nowadays, someone is getting paid for it. And there is a process to track that. So 
what we've tried to do is explain either to governments as a job creation, skills and education, tourism, branding, international recognition, whatever they're trying to accomplish, that if they think about music at the earliest possible stage and think about it as an ecosystem and provide what is needed to get to that point where music is valuable, then they'll reap the rewards. And same for a developer. So we can all, I think, kind of understand that arts and culture play a role in society. What, what is it specifically about music which you think can have value and, and how? Music is our only universal language. We all speak it. It's the only thing that everyone speaks. We're all born with an instrument, most of us using it or not. And music is, that, is, to me, the one cultural form that impacts all other cultural forms. So dance requires music, or most dance requires music. You know, most perf- uh, performative arts involve music in one way or another. You know, music is tied to fashion. Music is tied to visual arts. Music is tied to graffiti. It's, it's, a, it's in line with other forms of cultural expression. And it's also, you know, one of the cheapest forms of art to create. Yes, you need to purchase an instrument, but you don't need to. You can sing. Mm-hmm. And anyone has the skills within them to play music. And we're not talking about just creating music industries. That's important. We need a, an industry to, to ensure you know, that music is being bought and sold and people are making money. But for me, it's, it's more about music being a part of people's life. It's, it's music being a part of healthy aging. It's music being a part of early childhood education. It's music being part of ways to reduce crime. This is something you've written about, which I found really interesting because it, it ties in with a wider wellness theme in real estate. Yeah. And that there does seem to be what you've seen, you know, yeah, empirical well, data that it can improve well-being. I always find wellness isn't a theme. Wellness is just do the right thing. Yeah, we are a, we are a private company. We charge for our services, but you you know there's an altruism behind this. Is if we're making the world better in our way, then we're going to benefit as much as anyone else. That's why I feel it's the same way as being more sustainable can be more profitable. You know, being more pro environment is actually a good business decision over time. And so with music, music is a, is a way that we think we can bring people together in the simplest, most cost-effective way. We don't discriminate against what the word music means to anybody. We work across all genres, across all disciplines. And we try to explain the value of music to non-music industries because music as an industry is quite complicated. And it has its own checkered history, I would say. You know, we are a sector that sued our customers. That's not a good thing. But the industry's in growth. It's... It has recovered. It's doing a lot of things right right now. It has a lot of ways to improve. But I think that the value of music to other sectors is as as high, as important as it's ever been. You have also said before that one person's music is another person's noise, which is yeah. definitely something I can sympathize with. So when, when you're <laughs> thinking about planning a, a music ecosystem, how how do you think about keeping everyone happy it's like anything else um you know music is an environmental health issue in in some cases you know i would say i'm paraphrasing but at least 85 to 90 percent of noise complaints in london are residential noise complaints so we always joke if we want to get rid of noise complaints in london let's just ban houses then we're done and we'll get rid of 85 percent of them but obviously that's not a solution so by Music being taken into consideration in the master planning process and the usage of music, how, it's, how it will be worked with in a community, 
Um, that to me would then provide the architects, the designers, the planning consultants within this chain of how developments um, are built to look at the building materials that are used, to look at where balconies, for example, are going to be placed on resi units that may be the ground floor is being used for either a, you know, a cafe use or restaurant use or something with music. And more than like if there's a cafe restaurant and we could stick a piano in there, that's music, right? If we can do jazz on Sundays or, or children or a choir or something like that. It's, so I think what we're trying to do is look at it from a master planning phase. It's not to say that it should be any – there's nothing prescriptive about it. I want people to be able to use it in the best possible ways for it to positively impact the most amount of people. And you need to think about the way you design public realm, the way you design new uh, mixed-use developments. From a city's perspective, because this is all going to have to be led from a, a, a civic level, I suppose. So what do the cities stand to gain other than happier people? All cities are competing for the same thing, really, which is us, uh, you know, young white collar techie kind of jobs uh they're also competing they're competing for uh, global wealth and global capital flows and you know if you look at the ridiculousness of the uh the race for amazon's new headquarters in the united states all of the um shortlisted cities are touting their culture and leisure and evening and nighttime economy offer that's not just music but music is a huge part of that and when you look at uh, public transit and how cities are changing. Often public transit is, you know, for me, it's based on getting to people to and from work. Yeah. But from work is usually also from a leisure activity where they went to from work. And by touting this type of stuff, you have to, you have to create a, a mindset, an atmosphere where the city is pro-culture, pro-music, pro-evening and nighttime economy, recognizes the risks but deals with them. I think that any city that wants to just survive in terms of getting not only uh, attracting the right workforce but also educating their own internal workforce. I believe that cities need to prioritize arts and culture education. I think some of the global cities... Uh, that I admire are doing that. And, and by having a formal structured music policy, like any other policy, I'm not talking that it's any more important than anything else. Right. It's just another hey, thing. It's just a, it's, you just have to have one. Like we have, you know, a, a paving policy and a pothole policy. And What does a utopian music policy look like? It's a process. There is no end. Um, there's a human being responsible for it who is paid to do so. Um, there is a relationship with their colleagues within the planning department so that when there is a development that comes into committee or that comes into a decision-making process and it involves or potentially impacts a music use, then there is a, a music officer who can at least provide comments onto right. that application. Same with uh, licensing. You know, licensing is uh, globally requires you know, completely rewriting. And it's interesting in the places that have next to no licensing are the ones that have the most evening and nighttime economy, like South Asian cities right. and African cities and where everything's happening at night because there are no rules. I don't advocate for that, but I, I think that it requires a lot more thinking. Has the improvements in um, soundproofing abilities been reflected in our licensing or not, not sufficiently? New builds, yes. Like anything making noise that's a new build near 
people who don't want noise being made um, tends to be built in a better way. Um, it's outfitting old buildings. That is the problem. Still, still challenging. Yeah, that's the challenge. Uh, and, you know, living above pubs, which people have been doing since pubs existed. But, um, you know, when pubs put on more live music, then it can create issues for the residents above, even though the pub wasn't designed to have residents above. It's dealing with issues before they become issues. Uh, when it comes to utopian music policy is someone who is adding up the economic value to be able to communicate the economic value, someone who's doing a... Um, a kind of employment survey, for lack of a better word, to understand the value chain of music across all sectors of music and the subsectors that music impacts, like hospitality, transportation, logistics, things like that. And and there's a voice. That's the thing that I find most that that's most important to me. There needs to be a voice, right? Because you are ultimately selling common sense, not just to the cities for whom the the story is, I think, fairly obvious, but also. For developers, whether they're forward-thinking or not, the, the reality is if you can give your property an, an edge, whether that's through culture, beer, arts, or music, it's a selling point. Well, yeah, all developers are marketing through culture in some way. They're Either they're trying to create a culture that is either correct or facetious, or they're using the existing culture that they're now building upon. From the bagel factory in Hackney Wick to the Collier Flats in Covent Garden to Collier was a jazz club in the fifties. Right, um, but it's you know that that's very very common. Again, it's it's almost a joke. It's like now you have a block of flats called the Bagel Factory <laughs> on the site of a bagel factory. Right, um, and I think that for places to remain relevant, you need to respect and honor the culture that came before. That makes sense, and it's again. It may not be a fully embraced movement quite yet, but the, the concept of space of a service with real estate moving towards a long-term asset class rather than short-term trade. Yeah, we've had to really... It's been a steep learning curve for someone who has worked in the music industry for 15 years and suddenly gets thrown into the world of development. I've had to learn a new language, and, and I understand that my definition of value or my definition of, of viable... Uh, may differ from others. So we've worked really hard to try to make music make sense within the language that the development and real estate community speak. And whether that's through placemaking, whether that's through just sheer viability, improving it, whether that's through making people's lives not so much better, but uh, providing a different added value to the Section 106 obligations. Right. Um, you have to play within the rules to change the rules. You're also right that you need to do it at, a, at an early stage in the, the urban yeah. master planning. You know, I feel very, uh, in a way, vindicated. There's been a couple master plans where sound diplomacy music venue had been written on it. And I'm like, that's great. <laughs> now I'm like, okay, well, what does that mean? Because I am not an urban designer. I'm not a master planner. But, you know, that you'd be surprised of how many people work in real estate and like music and want to go and see it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, on weekends and in the evenings, and, and they want to see their cities and their towns, you know, be vibrant. So this is, seems to be one of your bugbears, that people get too fixated on um, the flashy music venue and perhaps forget about where those performers are learning their trade at the, the more kind of grassroots style of Yeah, venue. my, you know, what drives me is the is protecting the ecosystem. I, you know, it's like I'm a... I feel like I'm a music environmentalist in that way. Like it's, 
it's so important to me that we do not lose sight because what we end up doing is we turn our business into an hourglass rather than a pipe pipeline. And it kind of is an hourglass now. And the music industry itself, the at least commercial music industry, has bit has has commercial reasons to enlarge the hourglass and shrink the pipeline. I say that in a general sense because there's loads and loads and loads of amazing people doing amazing things, hundreds of thousands. Um, but you know, when you have one artist, you have an artist like Ed Sheeran, who was I think his eight of his top eight of the top ten songs were the top ten. That's amazing because he is in a he's an amazing talent. He writes songs people want to listen to, and he connects. That is a skill that few people have. But if we have one artist, one artist where four-fifths of the top ten is one artist, that to me shows that our system is not working. Has that not always been the case in arts and cultures? If you look at the number of books published in America, just a tiny, tiny percentage get published, and of that, a tiny percentage kind of make money. And you look back through history, you know, what percentage of classical music listened to was composed by Mozart, Beethoven, etc.? It's normally dominated by a couple of key figures. I think it's tilted a little bit too far, I think, right now. But we need to be promoting the, a culture of sustainability, not a, a culture of stardom. You know, if you're in a cover band, like there's parts of the UK and the US where you can be in a cover band and you can tour your local region and play bars and back rooms and pubs and weddings and bar mitzvahs and things and make a good living. And that is perfectly fine with me. Like, that's what I want to see. I just want to see more people earning, more people consuming music. If we get a couple of new superstars out of it, brilliant. So that means we need more places that can have, that can, that can welcome music. Right. Yeah. That means those places need to be built or designed or outfitted or changed or whatever a certain way. I suppose what you're saying is it's, it's got to be more embracing. It's not just about the superstars. You want more participation, I suppose. Going back to the wellness argument, as our cities enlarge, we're having a crisis of loneliness. You know, there are developers doing work on this. One of our clients has a big project related to the, um, the design of their uh, resi and combating loneliness especially kind of the 55-plus single market, which is quite big because more people are living longer. Um, so, you know, how... I, I can't tell you how many times I talk to people and say where they, where they don't realize the power of music. I know this is getting a little bit away from property, but, you know, the, the point that someone with dementia can sing a song but not remember the, the face of their relative... That's really because it triggers a different thing in your brain. That, that's, that's, a, that's a tool for us. I see that. That's a tool. That's a wellness tool. That's a cognitive ability tool. The, the fact that music is that one um, subject that triggers both the kind of analytical, mathematical neurons in your brain and the artistic creative neurons in your brain. Altruistically, I fight for parity. But as a business, I'm trying to communicate the value to ensure that I'm getting closer and closer to parody. We haven't been wholly embraced. Uh, we've had many, I've, I've gone into many meetings where people, they just don't get it or they say, show me how this is going to make me two pounds tomorrow if it costs me one pound today. And I say, I can't do that. Music is more complicated, more nuanced. I suppose a live example where you, where you clearly have had success and where many of us listeners could relate to is with the mayor of London. Could you explain a little bit your, um, your involvement? 
We've been working uh, as consultants with the mayor of London for three years. I was involved actually uh, in a minor role, admittedly, in the publication of a report about small to medium-sized music venues and why they were closing down. Uh, within that report was a recommendation to create at that time was called a night mayor for London. And then I was then subsequently hired, well, Sound Diplomacy was subsequently hired as a consultant to enact the recommendations in that report, which led to the creation of the London Music Board, which I developed working with the mayor's team. Um, what later became the Night Czar, which was uh, a joint effort by myself and a couple other people. Uh, and and the mayor of London's culture team, who are amazing, and the earliest incarnations of the mayor of London's nighttime commission, which I'm no longer involved in, but I uh, did the first six months. Um, once the night czar was in post, she's amazing. She kind of has, obviously, she has her own staff now. And I've been involved very, very intensely and directly with the mayor's music policy. So the mayor has two full-time people working for music, but... There's people working on the periphery of music as well, so it could go up to maybe four or five. And there are a number of, I guess, consultants in a charity that are really directly involved. Through that initial report, we advocated for a planning policy change called Agent of Change, yep. which essentially just says it's the, you know, the person initiating the change has to mitigate any potential um, negative implications uh, within a certain square area if you are building a house next to an existing mil uh, music facility it's your responsibility to insulate the house so it doesn't have the effects from the music venue rather than or insulate versa. the music venue right. or vice versa so if you're building you know it goes both ways okay. if you're a music yeah, sure. venue in a resi development you have to do the same thing uh, it's an australian concept it seems been, totally fair i mean that yeah it was it's it, it's actually a lot more complicated, as I've learned, and, and I'm not a planner, but it, it kind of was written in law, but it wasn't being abided by. So right. it, a version of it, a very watered-down version of it, um, was in the NPPF. Like, it didn't explicitly say, don't do this. But because the NPPF was, I would say, cited in favor of development, a few use cases and permitted development happened in 2010, mainly conversion of office to resi. It just sped up this this kind of this change that was happening without us knowing that it was happening. Conflict. And, and, and then there was a, a very you know, high-profile case related to the Ministry of Sound nightclub um, in South London. And working with an organization called the Music Venue Trust, this charity for music venues, UK Music, which is kind of the British Property Federation for Music, the GLA, myself and, so, and uh, another consultancy called Nordicity and a few others, we were able to put the case together to get the uh, planning team at the GLA to write an agent of change provision into the London plan. Um, I can't say that it was us. Again, you, you know, there were so many people involved, but I was part of the pushing. <laughs> and then that was written in, and then that got taken by UK Music to MP John Speller, a Labour MP who then has introduced a, a cross-party bill in Parliament to make agents of change a national law in the um, amendment of the MPPF, which I believe has passed its second reading and hopefully will be made into law later this summer. And then if that happens, we will the UK will be the first country to have ever done this, which I think is pretty forward-thinking and a time when we could use some forward-thinking things to shout about. And, um, and it all started with, with a report about music venues where do we stand in terms of london have we have we now got to a stage where music 
venue closures have, have stopped and we're starting to incorporate new ones? They haven't stopped. You know, business is business, you know, but venues will open, venues will close. They've certainly stabilized in terms of, you know, we don't have, we have, we lost about between 35 and 40% in 10 years. That's a lot. Um, in the last two years that has stabilized, we've seen a few open. There's been three or four openings this year. A lot of it's down to mindset. I feel like how, I always think, how can you note the change? And to me, it's the, the different ways that people are communicating about this, like the tone shift that was, I think, pioneered by Amy LeMay, the Knights are, uh, the mayor of London's culture team, who are very good at this stuff. And just, I write a lot about it. The CEO of the Music Venue Trust writes a lot about it. Developers are really interested in this. They have to see the viability. Um, but they're, they're willing to listen. If you're a, um, a developer listening, we're in a world where mixed use, if you're going to base it around residential and, say, retail in particular, is probably becoming more challenging. So if someone's listening thinking, oh, well, how maybe, maybe music can help plug that gap, in what way would that manifest itself? I think, again, we're in a business of experiences nowadays. That's what we're actually selling to people. People want less stuff, but they want to experience more. A, you have to be technologically adapt in whatever you're building to be able to provide those experiences. London still isn't there yet. You know, we don't really have a credible esports facility in London, for example. There's a couple that are being developed. Uh, uh, what sports? Esports. E esports, right. Okay, yes. Huge yes. business. Yep. Huge business, watching people play video games. It's amazing. Uh, and um, like, just for example, music as well. There, there are a few venues in London that really have the real capabilities that are available to us. You know, we only have one purpose-built arena, the O2. Yep. You know, Wembley was, Wembley's been outfitted and changed and is much better, but it was for cattle shows. That's why it was built originally for fairs. And I saw the Rolling Stones on Friday at the Olympic Stadium. And, you know, Olympic Stadium is not a music venue, it's a stadium. I think that we're coming to the realization that as the city is growing, we're going to have more and more people who want experiences rather than want stuff. So we need to be providing them places to experience, whether it's experience food and beverage, culture, whatever. So we, I'm not saying we need a music venue in every corner, but we need places that can welcome music. I guess, again, we're talking about the kind of big um, headline-grabbing venues. What happens? How can you work more with grassroots? You need mixed-use buildings, We've done a lot of work on this with our partners. And in, in if you have less than 500 capacity and your pure trading income is from music, then it's not going to work. I see looking at a music venue in two ways. One, it's a community center because we're losing those. And we need those, whether it be for youth groups, daytime use, yoga, all that type of stuff. And the other side to me is a tech incubator. So, you know, music venues are, I've, I've spoken about this, you know, a music venue is an amazing incubator. Think about all the jobs and skills that are being developed in that place at that time across all the functions of the venue, from design to legal to accounting to the performers to the bartenders to the management to blah, blah, blah. And I think that um, we have to recognize music is an end to lots of things. When you say it's an end to lots of things, you're talking about it's kind of incidental use in... Um Advertising, for instance, I mean, if a building is is designed to welcome, to be supportive of music, good sound, it's designed a certain way so that the artists have a good experience in them, in it. Um, it can 
it automatically opens itself up to loads of other art forms and, and uses. You've touched on it before, but I just want to pick up it again. Um, data analysis within music and your attempts to demonstrate quantitatively the, the benefits of, of music on the built environment. Where do we stand and, and where can we go in, in terms of what we can and can't show? You know, I'm fairly confident now in our ability to show tangibly the value of music over time. Um, you can link it with other data points. Uh, you know, you can look at other, I'd say, other metrics that the real estate community is already using, land value, census mapping, things like that. We now, you know, we've developed a tool that can measure the value of music in a particular place. We have our own piece of AI that I've developed myself because no one else was doing it. <laughs> uh, and and I, you know, I like every piece of technology, it's a work in progress, but... It can identify where everything is. Um, it can map cultural infrastructure pretty quickly um, in real time. And now we're able to match it against, over time, for example, um, the change in land value right. or house prices. So we can correlate. We have a ways to go, but we are the only uh, company doing this. And... You know, which is good and bad. <laughs> if you go for a cluster of small of small venues, are there chains of music venues which are around today? And and do you think that the chain is even kind of compatible with music as a as a kind of concept? There, there aren't so much chains of music venues, but there are there are uh, large operators who own multiple music venues. So the you know the O2 Academy world that that still exists. Live Nation still owns them. You know, a la uh, the Mean Fiddler system in the past. Mm-hmm. But there are companies, there's, there's half a dozen companies that own multiple venues across the UK. Uh, they're just called different names. So, like, the small to medium-sized music venue is a viable business as long as there are other businesses within that model, including, you know, a restaurant and food establishment or, um, you know, commercial use of the building during the day. So it would be remiss of me to uh, omit to mention that you you have effectively defined the concept of a music city, which embraces much of what we've talked about. I'm one of the protagonists. There are others. Modestly playing down your part. But um, where does uh, the concept of a music city go from here? It's been around forever. You know, it was devised in the 1940s in Nashville as a branding tool for Nashville, Nashville Music City. Mm-hmm. Nashville is the only universally branded music city. Austin is kind of the live music capital of the world, which was decided in a board meeting in 1991. There's no statistics to back that up. (laughs) And statistically, it has been done. And and Austin, I don't think, is the live music capital of the world. I think Melbourne for large cities is, if you look at the amount of concerts per capita. But even so, that, who knows? Right. (laughs) Um, The term originated... In a number of ways. So, yeah, it's been around for a long time, but the way that we talk about it, it there was a, a report that I was involved in in a small way. Again, I didn't write it, but one of my advisors did. Name, his name is Martin Elborn. Uh, he works uh, for the Glastonbury Festival and founded The Great Escape. And he wrote a report about the city of Adelaide in South Australia about why the downtown wasn't brilliant after 6 p.m. And that kind of inadvertently became a Music City report because the solution – so that was liberalizing some um, some laws to make it easier for music to be played in places. Out of that report, Martin and I created a conference called Music Cities Convention, 
which still exists. Uh, it's now the biggest in the world. We've had a couple hundred cities come. That was the start of the term. And then the term kind of was created around me. Like, I think I'm good at proliferating it. I, I can't say... You invented it. I invented it. Does it preclude smaller towns and cities? It's a stupid term in that sense because, no, it should... But music places doesn't sound very good. Or Every congregation of people has music. If you have people, you have music. And if you have the, the policy infrastructure to... Um, to manage and support it and question it and measure it and assess it, then you are a music city. And for anyone listening who would like to know more and get in touch, what's the best way to get hold of you? Sounddiplomacy.com is the best way. I'm admittedly not the world's greatest at social media. As, as we become more and more technologically advanced, I gravitate more and more towards actual books. You do write some interesting blogs, though. I do a lot of writing. I, I, I used to be a music journalist in my old life. Getting in touch with me through our website, you can email me. It's just my name, Shane, at sounddiplomacy.com. Perfect, thank you. And we'll just finish up with two fairly uh, left-field questions, the first of which is, uh, what is your favorite building? The building that I can remember being blown away by the first time I saw it was the the grand place in Brussels, right, in the main square. I know it's a bit gaudy, but I remember the first time I went to Brussels, I think I was 18, and I... And it was like 7 p.m. And it was a beautiful night. You know, all the shadows were working in yeah. the building's favor. And that building was just marvelously beautiful. I, I love Alexandra Palace in a weird way. As a venue or as a, as a... As a concept, as a building. So utilitarian. It's done so many things for so many people. The fact that they unearthed this like gorgeous theater that hadn't been used in 80 years. And now, you know, it's now opening and, and they're showing and they're having plays in it. I just find that so fascinating. And final question, what, what have you, are there any other businesses you've come across along your path which you think are kind of really interesting in terms of the innovative potential they offer to the built environment? You know, there's some, like Curb is a company that fascinates me. I think that what they've done for food is something that I kind of look up to, saying, can we do that for music or some version of that? I well, look, thank you very much for inviting me over and for, uh, for giving up your time to, to speak to us. It's been uh, yeah. fascinating. Cheers. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much. Shane argues that music is the only universal language and is part of most people's lives from early education through to the healthy aging process. It's a simple, cost-effective way of bringing people together and therefore key to helping to build communities. In the space-as-a-service age, this should really be grabbing property owners' attention. From a civic perspective, as our cities enlarge, competing for human capital and resources, music can not only be a driver of growth and in attracting talent, but also a key tool in solving the crisis of loneliness. Now, due to land value issues, music needs to be integrated into the master planning stage of development in order to be properly effective. Shane believes that for this to happen, cities and authorities need a coherent music policy and an internal music officer who can promote the cause and liaise with planning, hospitality and transport departments to ensure that policy intentions are actually delivered. Sound Diplomacy have witnessed firsthand the efficacy of this, this approach via the creation of London's Night Zone. Developers are all selling through culture to some extent and music can be yet another string to their bow. However, while data can now demonstrate the value of music over time, demonstrating short-term return on capital does remain an issue. 
A successful music policy will have to encompass the full music infrastructure, from large venues through to grassroots. Chain suggests that for venues with capacity of less than 500 to be viable, mixed-use options should be explored. And I'm sure that tech-enabled solutions, such as Vanessa Butz's District, can play a role in enabling this duality of buildings. I'll be back next week with a new episode, so please join me as I discuss the transport systems of the future and how we can use technology to deliver major infrastructure projects in a more collaborative and timely manner. Finally, as a small favour and just for a few moments of your time, please do rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts or just like or share the episode-related articles that I'll post on LinkedIn. It really is the best way of getting out our message to the widest community possible and I'd really appreciate it if you could take the time. Thank you again and I hope you'll join me next week on Building Our Future.